Food drives are not the answer to poverty and hunger. The, uh, hey, that's not me. That's the headline saying that uh, from an opinion piece in the Toronto Star. That when I read, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? Food drives are not the answer to poverty and hunger. Who's putting out a message like that at one of the busiest times for food banks in the year, in the calendar year? Paul Taylor is executive director of Food Share Toronto. He's our guest, and he's one of the people that co-authored that opinion piece. Paul, it, it sounds shocking to most people, and I wonder if uh, there's any concern that most people won't read past the headline, and this could affect you know, the giving that is occurring right now throughout the city and beyond. Kelly, you know, I'm, I'm really honored to be here, and I think that's a great question. Um, and first and foremost, I would say, you know, food banks have actually a tremendous fundraising capacity, um, and it, it, it's really remarkable. It's, a, it's actually a lot of the grassroots groups um, that really struggle with access to funding, especially around this time of year. So our hope in putting out the, that op-ed was really to encourage people as they're wanting to do something because they, they, they want to see change around food insecurity, around poverty. Well, we're just really trying to help them recognize that these are political issues that we really need to be making sure that our politicians are stepping up to help address. So your message to everyone was, if you'd really like to uh, find it in your heart to solve the problem, you need to go farther than just dropping things off to a food bank at this time of the year. You need to do more. What, what can the average person do? Absolutely. You know, I think what we do, our default is we go through our cupboards and we figure out, you know, do we have any leftover cranberry sauce or tuna butter or whatever it is? And we drop it off at the food bank and we feel great. But that doesn't really shift the dial. You know, food insecurity is an issue of income primarily. And giving someone leftover cranberry sauce doesn't increase their incomes, doesn't address the, you know, the root causes of food insecurity. So what we'd like to see people do, this is really a political issue. You know, communities don't have the capacity to respond to food insecurity. We only see 25% of people that are food insecure actually going to food banks. So really, we see that a more effective intervention is around things like income, um, you know, we should be increasing our minimum wage. Minimum wages should be livable. We should be building the affordable housing that we need. We should have pharmacare. All of those things, have, uh, you'll be surprised, they have nothing to do with food. Because what happens for folks is food is a flexible cost. So people, are they have their fixed costs, housing, um, all of those pieces. And when those things are too expensive, that's when they compromise food. So the solution doesn't lie in food and certainly not in leftovers or corporate waste. The solution lies in making sure that we have effective social economic policy. So when the Daily Bread Food Bank and North York's <coughs> Harvest released their Who's Hungry report, we have to look at it and uh, realize that that's not really a true indicator of how many people are uh, experiencing food insecurity in our, our area. It absolutely isn't. I think it's an important tool, you know, and it really spurs some, some needed conversation. And I think it's important to highlight the pressures that food banks are facing, because like I say, this issue has been downloaded onto charities like food banks uh, through no fault of their own. So, but because only a really small portion of people that are food insecure are actually accessing food banks, I think trying to find our solutions um, solely in those spaces can be, can be challenging. We really have to understand what's going on in this country around food insecurity. What are the systems and institutions and public policies that actually direct people towards poverty and food insecurity? And how 
how can we work to dismantle uh, those? Can you, I know these are very big problems and they're complex uh, that, that are, are you've just illustrated, but can you walk us through some of the uh, ways that you think that we can tackle food insecurity? For sure. So I would say, you know, 60% of people that are food insecure are actually working. So these are people who are working hard, they are leaving home likely, um, and not getting paid enough. So I think the first thing we've got to do is we've got to look at minimum wages across the, across the country. And there's no reason that a minimum wage should be set to a, a rate that we know isn't livable. Um, what that's doing is legislating poverty. So the first thing we need to do is to be hiking minimum wage, not to $15, but to livable rates. Um, the other thing we could be doing, um, now moving to the federal government, is we used to build affordable housing in this country, something like 20,000 units a year, which we stopped doing in 1993. Um, so we need to get back to that in a big way because people are facing you know, significant housing pressures. And the folks that are struggling the most are people who need to access, you know, rent geared to income at the shelter allowance level. So we need to be building affordable housing, especially for those that are struggling the most in our society ASAP. So those are Paul, just I have a question things. about that, if yeah. I could just barge Please. in here and ask you, because I, you know, this is before my time again, you know, 1993, I, I was quite young and, and focused on other things. Why did we stop building affordable housing? Yeah, it was a part of the Martin Kretchen deficit um, uh, slashing time, you know, and the folks who felt the pain of the, that slash um, were people who were poor. And, and um, we continue to feel, people continue to feel that pain of those cuts. And we really need to prioritize. We live in one of the richest countries in the world. You know, how could it be that we allow people to struggle with access to a place to sleep, how could it be that we, 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 we think it's, you know, we have people sleeping in parks, you know, th this is all symptoms. How could it be that people are lining up to get leftover food from, from, from other people? These are all symptoms of a broken system that um, we really need to be thinking more holistically about how to address. I know the NDP wants to raise the minimum wage uh, on a yearly basis uh, based on inflation. Is that something we should look at doing? Yeah, I think what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that all incomes are livable incomes. And one of the tools to do that is once we hit um, a livable uh, rate, one of the tools to make sure that they remain livable is to index them to inflation. So I think indexing to inflation is key. I think we've got to immediately work on making sure that wages are, are, are livable because, like I say, we are just legislating poverty and hunger and a great deal of stress for families across the, the city and province. So, Paul, I interrupted you. You were about to, to jump to another point uh, in a way that we can address food insecurity. We've got um, creating more affordable housing or at least mm -hmm. getting back to uh, creating affordable housing, uh, the minimum wage, making sure that it's a livable wage. Uh, where else are we at as far as a, a possible solution and, and things we should be pushing our government to do? Okay, and I'll say, you know where I get most of these? It's, it's really quite simple. Really, I have mm -hmm. conversations with people that are food insecure, and I understand, and I ask about what's going on for them. And often, it's housing costs, it's, um, you know, incomes that are too low. Another thing I hear that's pretty often is, I hear stories of people not being able to afford the medicine that they need. I hear stories about people cutting their medicine in half um, uh, to preserve it uh, so that it lasts longer, or simply going out with, going without their medicine. So I think a Another thing that would be really effective at combating um, uh, food insecurity would be a pharmacare program. 
And there's one other thing I want to add that I think is really important in this conversation. And it's, you know, when we think about food insecurity in this country, it's also important to recognize that it is a racialized, pro it's, it's a racial project. You know, to be black in Canada means you're three and a half times more likely to live in a food insecure household. You know, almost 50% of the population of Nunavut, uh, where the majority of folks are indigenous, live in a food insecure household. This is not about, again, donations, and it isn't even really primarily about income. This is about anti-Black racism and anti-indigeneity. So we've, we've got to have our governments leading in looking at our systems and institutions to make sure that they aren't continuing to inflict the kind of harm that's caused by things like anti-Black racism and anti-indigeneity. Paul, I, I was looking at uh, uh, one of the social media feeds of a friend that I follow who I worked with years ago, George Strombolopoulos. It's and one of the things that he said um, was, uh, it, it was, I don't really know what the topic was, you know, what, what initiated him saying it, but he said, you know, if not, a, if everyone in your country doesn't have access to clean drinking water, then perhaps you're not the country you thought you were. You know, mm -hmm. when you talk about the fact that um, there are uh, certain groups that are um, suffering food insecurity more than others based on race, it, do we have a problem with admitting that we might have a problem with racism in Canada? I mean, do you think most of us want to believe that that just doesn't exist and how that actually uh, could be leading and just facilitating this food insecurity and this and this problem to continue because we don't want to admit that maybe we're not living in the country we thought we were and i know those well, are dangerous words to say because people are going to say oh give me a break sister but i just said it i love it kelly we're getting juicy this is the good stuff this is really important I think the piece around racism and the fact that it hasn't been part of the conversation about food insecurity is because those in positions of leadership or those in the solution finding spaces, whether it's in charitable food organizations or in government or bureaucrats, are disproportionately people who have had the privilege of not experiencing racism. So there's a real reluctance to, to engage in, in this conversation sometimes because it makes people uncomfortable. But if we don't engage in the conversation, what we're doing is we're pacifying those that will be made uncomfortable at the expense of those that are struggling to put food on their tables. And that must be our priority. And that's FoodShare's priority. That's my priority. And those are the things that we are going to be fighting for tooth and nail because I work with a team of people that believes that no one in this uh, on this land should be without food and we should all be able to access it, engage with it with dignity and joy. Paul, I've got to leave it at that, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for, um, you know, talking about your op-ed piece. I think it's nice to be able to break it all down and, and get to the root of what you meant by food drives are not the answer to poverty and hunger. And if you can, support your local food bank at this time, but we've got to do more. I appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you so much, Kelly. Real pleasure. And huge also thanks to my co-writers, Elaine Power and Valerie Teresic from Proof. Cheers.